through these different messages, especially as I look at parenting and discipline and how to balance that well. Um, you know, looking at how I discipline, the words associated with that. You know, when we went through those things last week, it was pretty convicting because I love to say I told you so. And my favorite phrase of, this is why we can't have nice things. I love doing those things. Um, you know, and through that message, I've been kind of assessing the things that I say. If there's different ways to say it, um, how I approach those times, um, to approach it with the fruit of the Spirit rather than in my own flesh, a little bit more consistently anyway. You know, how I can also surrender and submit to more of those ways in my life, recognizing those times when I'm falling, recognizing those times when I'm falling back into those same patterns, while at the same time still disciplining my children well, teaching my kids how to rest. And as I mentioned near the end of the message, that's part of the problem. As I said, you can only lead somebody as far as you've gone, and rest tends to be an issue for me. I don't do it well. You know, I, I envision myself as I'm running a marathon, and God's got the cup of water on the side, and I just grab it from him, splash it in my face, and throw it back and keep on running, maybe getting a few drops here and there, but not really sitting to rest and being able to lead from a place of rest rather than in my own power. The Lord has shown me that's the next step that I need to take in my growth in a couple of different areas. You know, when I say rest, I don't mean becoming a couch potato and being lazy and doing nothing, which can be needed sometimes, but rather rest where I'm stopping all forms of trying or working in my own strength and instead resting in His strength, His power, His grace, which sustains me where I'm walking with him doing what I ask, or what he asks. I saw this picture this week, and I thought it was kind of appropriate. Again, this issue of balance, where sometimes we can just say God's in control and leave it at that. Not, not really listening to the commands, not really listening to what he's asking us to do, but just saying, you've got this, God. So many times we can approach life in that way. But the Lord has shown me through, you know, quiet times the past few weeks that areas that I need to grow in my life, where I need to seek Him, is comfort and love. So as I continue to study, as I continue to spend those times, those are going to be the areas of my focus. You know, to where I need this renewed sense. Over the last couple of years, especially, I've felt this lack. You know, I've shared with elders, I've shared with others that if I were to describe my walk many times, it would be like the church in Ephesus, where I've forgotten my first love, to where as I become a pastor, as I perform the duties of pastor, many times it just becomes a job or it can become work, and I lose sight of that love that I have with Christ, where I'm doing the job in my own strength, in my own power, where coming up here in my weaknesses can drain me. And as we talked about last week with this image of the branch in John 15, if I'm a branch that's not connected to the root, I'm going to get dried out pretty quick. And you see that with pastors. You see that in ministry all the time. You know, normally as Christians, I would say that we are good when it comes to the grafting, meaning we're good to accept salvation. 
but it's that Lord aspect that really gets, gets to people, where we have to continue to be connected to the root, connected to the source in Christ, discerning um, the Spirit to address those areas that we need to grow in. And today we're going to be starting a short walk through Romans 6 through 8, within this lens of keeping in step with the Spirit. We will break a few weeks this year for Advent and pick back up with these chapters if I don't get through them in the next four weeks. Um, but then we'll be going into more of how the Spirit empowers the church and the believer today and going through some of those passages. So kind of a roadmap of where we're going to be going to in the next few months. Um, but for today, we're going to be reading through Romans 6. And I will let you know it happened on Friday. I woke up with this wonderful idea of maybe I should start with Romans 8 and then work my way backwards. But there wasn't enough time to really plan through that. I mean, that's the way I preach through Ecclesiastes when I do that. I start with Ecclesiastes 12 in the last paragraph so that when we read all of Ecclesiastes, we have the proper focus of what he comes to at the end of things. And the last few times that I've read through Romans, I've noticed the groupings of different chapters. Um, how when you're reading through these, you want to read through them together because Paul is elaborating on these points. And sometimes it's easy to cherry pick one chapter, but you miss what he's talking about in two chapters down that talks about this thing right here in chapter six. So sometimes it's good to read the end of that section first so you have the proper light to go through. But again, I didn't have, it was a little late to start from my comfortability level on that one especially as deep as some of these passages are, because this chapter is very rich. So today we're going to be reading Romans 6. Beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a res resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. No long, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin, we will have, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. 
Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, as we go to your word and unpack um, this chapter today, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truths, that you would expose the lies that we, ha- that we believe, uh, the lies that guide us to the wrong directions, make us step in areas that we shouldn't step. And Father, I pray that your truth would shine brightly today for us. In your name I pray, amen. So, have you ever heard the phrase that if you tell yourself a lie long enough, you begin to believe it? Lie, as defined by Webster back in the 1800s, as a noun, is a criminal falsehood. A falsehood uttered for the purpose of deception. An intentional violation of the truth. A false doctrine. An idolatrous idolatrous picture of God or a false God. He gives very similar definitions as a verb as well. Um, But we can see destructive natures behind lies. Lies destroy relationships. They attack the truth. And when we understand God as being truth, how do those lies then impact our relationship with him, who is true? You know, within this chapter, I find Paul dealing with the different lies that are going on in the believer's minds, different teachings that are going on, similar to Galatians 5 with what we just walked through. And then he refers them back to the truth, in Romans. Now, how easy it is to understand that truth, I think, would be up to the individual believers, what they're going through, the different barriers, maybe, uh, the different lies, the amount of lies that they have to sift through. Um, Barriers not in terms of to salvation, but barriers to faith in terms of growing in sanctification. You know, different lies that we're believing as truth, but they're not actually the truth. You know, and what I want to point out today for us are the different relationships that Paul is addressing. He is talking about a lot of different relationships for the believer that they have to walk through in their life and have a good understanding of. Their relationship to sin, their relationship to Christ, to temptation, and to righteousness. I think just by looking at or hearing these relationships, we know what side we want to be on, right? 
But again, as we face the different struggles that we do in life, at times we can forget or even dismiss the truth. And that affects then how we live our lives. You know, he's speaking to the Romans. He's speaking to this church in Rome. So these are believers. These are people who have heard the truth. But instead, they're living their lives through a bunch of different lies, lies that are going around, false teachings that are going around. And we've talked about these over the last few weeks in terms of license, in terms of legalism. License, this idea of cheap grace, where I'm saved so I can just go out and do whatever I want to do, um, and God's going to forgive me because he's faithful. Again, not really taking into heart this idea of repentance and having a deeper understanding of that. And then legalism, he kind of addresses that in the previous chapters, three, four, and parts of five, where it is not by the law that you are saved and law-keeping, but it is rather through faith. You know, when we think about our walks and keeping in step with the Spirit, the lies that we believe have an effect on where we're stepping. Many times, it could be with a legalistic step. Other times, it could be in a, a licensed type of direction. The enemy doesn't care. He just wants you to step off of the narrow way. He wants you to step over there because that's where he wants you because it's away from where God would have you be. This is where the gift of discernment comes in, where it's needed, where the Spirit is speaking that truth to us, breaking up some of these, these holds that are upon us that the lies might have. And Paul, within this chapter, is speaking a ton of truth to these lies that the church is believing. Now, as it starts off with what shall we say then, Let's go back up into chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, and see what he is addressing, what he is speaking to. Verse 20, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, as, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we then say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound. So we can see that connection there. I mean, again, we have these chapter breaks, but again, it's, it's like a letter. It's just written one thing right after the other. And then Paul says, may it never be so. You know, it's a very emphatic way of giving this negative. May it never have existence. May this not be in your minds as a way of doing things. You know, he asks then this rhetorical question of, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, it's rhetorical, I believe, because he says the truth. The truth is, as believers, we have died to sin. It's something that he assumes that they know, that they have knowledge of. This is the relationship that a believer has to sin. We are dead to it. That is the truth, and we need to hear that truth. We are dead to it. Instead, we have been given life from the Spirit. Life does not come from sin. Sin leads to death. Now, even though we try to follow these temptations, follow this sin to get some enjoyment, to get some pleasure, to find some life, to find some excitement, but many times it's just hollow, empty, um, temporary satisfaction, maybe. But Paul explains this relationship with the truth. All of us who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death. And over the next 10 verses, he lays out this distinction of dead to sin and alive to Christ. And if you get nothing else from the message today, 
get this summary. When a believer in Christ is considered or is reckoned by faith to be dead, buried and resurrected with Christ, they then cease to be a servant of sin and instead become servants of righteousness. It's kind of a summary for the whole chapter. It makes it clear in terms of the truth that we have to believe and live amid all of the lies that we might be hearing. And I love this teaching by Paul, especially about baptism. Again, he starts off assuming that all of those in Rome are baptized and that they know what that baptism means. He is reinforcing the truth to them here. He's not teaching them something new. You know, when I look through the New Testament, I am probably 99% sure you can correct me if I'm wrong. When a person came to faith in Jesus, they were baptized. Period. I mean, you have some instances of baptism in the Spirit that was separated from a believer's baptism. We might get into that in the beginning of the year. We'll see. Um, But at the same time, once a person believed, they were baptized. It wasn't, let me wait till I'm ready. It wasn't a, well, the church does one baptism service a year, so you just have to wait till then. It was, no, I believe I'm going to go get baptized. Because they understood what baptism meant. I love that truth because of what baptism means. How we are joining ourselves in the death, burial, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It takes away this whole idea that faith is intellectual, that it's a reasoning or a logic type of thing, that it is, I, I agree with this set of principles and beliefs. Too many times I find as Christians, we're too in our heads with our faith. You know, count the cost. Hear, hear the gospel message and jump in with both feet. One of the costs I think that we do not weigh very well is this fact that we are dead to sin. Do we even understand what that means? Let's look at what happens with Jesus in verse 4. Let me reread it for us. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You know, when we, when we look at verse 4, he is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in the newness of life. Notice the might there. Notice the subjunctive use. You know, to me, this whole chapter, this whole section kind of gives off this impression or this understanding of Moses with the serpent on the pole. Uh, A a reference or a passage that Jesus quotes in John chapter 3 as he's telling the the Israelites, those that are in Jerusalem, that they need to look upon the pole to be saved. Look, having this same meaning of faith. You know, we look to the cross. It was not us who were crucified and buried. It was Jesus. But through baptism, we are immersed in what he did. And we are united to him in his death. And then into his life. That is the relationship that we have with Christ. We are united to him. We are unified. We are immersed so that we too may live a new life unto God. Back up to verse 3. Do you not know this? Back to this question that Paul asks. 
Let's break this down a little bit further in terms of his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus' death was a submission to the will of the Father's plan, where he voluntarily chose to die the death on the cross on our behalfs to pay for sin. As a believer, we are in agreement with God's will and his judgment, where we acknowledge and we admit that we deserve death because of our sin. Death is owed. It is the wage of sin. And we accept, then, God's gracious and merciful provision of salvation through Jesus. That is the point of salvation for a believer. Jesus' burial, then, is being covered by death in the tomb. The wages of sin is death. Sin no longer has power over the dead. The price is paid. For a believer, baptism in water covers the believer as they are immersed in that water. It is a portrait of the tomb. It is a portrait of the burial. Through this type of death, a believer is then separated from sin. An understanding of what happened through Jesus, we die with him to sin. It no longer has power over us. And in the resurrection, Jesus is raised to new life from the dead. For a believer, as the believer comes up out of the waters of baptism, they are rising to new life. The new life has begun. Jesus says in John 11 to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Can we make some of the connections this morning to death, burial, and resurrection and the meaning of baptism? So Paul is explaining how Jesus' death and its purpose is to free the believer from sin. He says this in verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Death needs to happen in our life, and it is a death to sin. Now, obviously, people who are still living have the potential to sin, but they are not obligated to as believers. They have died to it with Christ. Verse 12 speaks deeply to this type of a battle. Verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You can see the battle within that verse. And then in the following section, 15 through the end, we, we see how Paul is talking about who we will be serving as our master, either sin or God. Now, we identify with Christ. We are unified with him through faith and baptism. It doesn't free us from the possibility of sin. A key verse to understand this, I think, is verse 6. We look at that verse. Our old self was crucified with him. So our sins have been paid for. You as a Christian have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Second, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Again, it doesn't mean here that there isn't a possibility to sin. Paul says in verse 13, as a warning, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, 
but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Again, we want to understand that the power of sin does not have a hold of us as we are walking with God. And that's an important thing to understand, this as we are walking with God. It's why I'm focusing so deeply on this phrase of keeping in step with the Spirit. There's always potential for us to veer from the, to the right or to the left. We have to understand where we're walking. Are we being led by the Holy Spirit? And third, in verse six there, we are no longer slaves to sin. Instead, we are set free from it. I think that is an experience um, within that verse that many of us will never really understand very well. Um, We can get it intellectually, but you know, when we think about it in a tangible way, what it means to be a slave and to be set free, to no longer have to obey what your master says or whatever you were in bondage to. You know, we can think of the many things that we're in bondage to and the freedom that we have from those things, but physical slavery isn't really much of a great concern to many of us. Obviously, within our history as a nation, we have those moments that we can look back to. But you, know, you think about that mood or the emotions that would be surrounding that. To be a freed slave, to hear your master say, jump. If you've lived your whole life as a slave, wouldn't your natural reaction almost be to say, how high? But the power is no longer there because you are set free. You don't have to listen to the enemy. You are free. You know, we look back to the events of the Emancipation Proclamation. All the things, the new realities that were surrounding that. Many different accounts. One goes like this. The word spread from Capitol Hill all out across the city, down into the valleys, in the fields of Virginia and the Carolinas, even into the plantations of Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama. Slavery legally abolished, read the headlines. And yet something amazing took place. The greater majority of the slaves in the South went right on living as though they were not emancipated. That continued throughout the Reconstruction period. The colored people remained locked in a caste system of race etiquette, as rigid as any had known in their former bondage. Every slave could repeat with equal validity what an Alabama slave had mumbled when he asked what he thought of the great emancipator whose proclamation had gone into effect. I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln, except they say that he set us free. I don't know nothing about that either. Is this reflection how we live our Christian lives? Do we know the freedom that we have in Christ? Do we know that we have been set free from the power of sin? Are we living in a way like that? Do we understand the role of the enemy and what he is trying to do with his lies? As a believer, it's important to understand the freedom that we have from sin, given to us by our great emancipator in Jesus, who rescued us from the bondage of slavery. Are we at that place where we understand the freedom that we have when we came to Christ? Not a freedom to go out and sin, but a freedom from sin. 
Perhaps as believers, we resembled these freed slaves from the past, continuing to live in the ways that we are used to, the ways of habit, the ways that we have known all of our life, where we live like the chains are still there, binding us for whatever reason. Through faith, we have been united to Christ. And Paul lays out the opposites here for the believers in terms of righteousness and unrighteousness and the steps that we can take in our life. He implores the readers to not let sin reign, to not let it have dominion, to not let it be a master over us. Instead, we are to consider, we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. To reckon, again, is not to say that we don't sin anymore because that's a foolish stance. Instead, it is the Spirit who is convicting us so that when we are faced with those temptations, we can focus on the righteousness of God and not the temptation from the enemy, where we are focusing on the truth and not on the lies. He asks another rhetorical question in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And again, by no means. Do you not know? Again, asking these questions, reaffirming the truth, to them. And he sets up this contrast of the last two relationships in terms of temptation and righteousness. He calls out how they used to be slaves to sin, and he is continuing to implore to them to understand that they are dead to sin. They will still face temptations, and he tells them not to present their members to sin. We cannot just stand there leaning on the shovel. We have to actively obey what Christ is telling us, what the word of God is teaching us. Do not present your members to sin. You're gonna face temptation. Don't fall for it. Respond to it with the truth. Go back to Jesus' temptation in the garden. He uses scripture to combat the, the temptations, the lies from the enemy. He continues to go back and forth with the teachings. Here is the lie. Here is the truth. Here there was sin, now there is Jesus. Old self and the new self. He hammers home these truths. Looking at 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Again, if you continue to hear that same lie repeated over and over again in your hearts and minds, if people continue to tell you those lies, you begin to believe them as truth. But the same is true for the opposite. If you continue to fill your head with the knowledge of God, with the truth of the word, you begin to believe that it's truth, and you begin to walk in that truth. Because he is your standard. He is your foundation. And that is what you are resting your faith on. It's very important for us to have the truth being poured into our hearts and minds. You know, if when you hear the truth over and over again, you begin to believe it. And when I say believe, I mean living. I mean walking. I mean keeping in step with. Where we're walking in the truth. You know, it's easy to say intellectually, I believe in something, but then walk in a completely different direction. 
That's why James says, you show me your faith, great. I'm going to show you my works which prove my faith. You know, we can say all of the creeds. We can say all the fancy prayers. But how you live, the steps you take, speak volumes to the testimony of what you truly believe. We need to be walking in the Spirit who has strengthened us. He's the one that puts us on our feet. He guides our steps and shows us the ways of truth. I think Paul explains these relationships in a great way throughout this chapter. In verse 20, he continues to look at this alternative where it's one or the other. And he basically says, look, look at how you were living under sin. What was the fruit of that? Are you not ashamed of that fruit? Are you not ashamed of the results, the outcomes of how you were living your life in that way? Your eyes have been opened now. Now you can recognize sin for what it is. You realize that the outcome of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But you as a believer have been baptized with Christ. You have died to sin. You have become slaves to God. Your fruit of righteousness leads to sanctification. It leads to your holiness being lived out. Righteousness leads to sanctification, and the end result of that is glorification, eternal life with the Father. Sin leads to death. It goes back to Deuteronomy. Therefore, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life. Present your members to righteousness, not to sin, not to the lie. We are to be living our lives, keeping in step with the Spirit. It is an amazing gift from the Father, one that we cannot take too lightly, one that we need to um, continue to dive deeper in each and every day, counting the cost of what it means to live this life. So this week, I encourage you over the coming weeks to read these chapters together, even read them in reverse order, read them eight, seven, and six. It might give you a different perspective as you understand and read in a different light. Because what's being laid out within these chapters are building off of each other. And again, we're going to cover this at least for the next four weeks. But as we continue to look at how we're keeping in step with the Spirit, we want to understand that as believers that we are unified in Christ. We reckon ourselves, we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive with Christ. We are dead, buried, and resurrected with Jesus and servants of righteousness. It's a truth that we need to continually repeat to ourselves until we believe it, until we are living it, until we are breathing it. Because it can easily be one of those things that become, it's too good to be true. And then we dismiss it. We look to what's around us for our reality. The truth has to come from the word of God. Not what you see around you. Not the trials, not the temptations, not, not the world. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. And no, we can think that we are unworthy to receive this precious gift. But you just go back to the simple verses in the Bible. Where God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The blood of the lamb was sacrificed for you as a believer. God counts you as worthy. 
we need to begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us. Sees us. We need to begin to believe the truths of the scripture. Everyone else may hate you, but Jesus loves you. And that is the only love that matters. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to dive into these topics, I pray that you would help us to deep help us to deeply reach those areas that we have hidden. Lord, that your spirit can be introduced beyond the barriers that we erect and that we can find healing in you. Healing from these lies that have distorted our viewpoints, that have changed the ways that we live. Lord, what an awesome truth that we have been set free from sin. We don't have to be obedient. We don't have to say how high if sin says jump. Instead, we can respond with the truth. I am free. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would release any burdens of bondage that are on our hearts this morning, that we can confess the sin to you and that we can know your forgiveness, that as far as from the east is from the west, you have cast our sin as away from us. Lord, I pray with those lightened hearts that we can worship you more fully this week, understanding the unification that we have in Christ. We praise you for the gospel message. Praise you for salvation. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would strengthen us through the sanctifying process. And we eagerly look forward to the day of glorification when either you call us home or you come back for your church. Lord, you are king. You are master. You are the Lord of our lives. And we praise you and only you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.